Hello, everybody. Thanks for checking out another John's Lonely Podcast. Before we get to our guest, let me let you know what I'm sipping and what I'm smoking. I picked up a bottle of Uncle Nearest, the 1884 Small Batch, a little bit north of 40 bucks. Head on over to their uh, website, UncleNearest.com. It is a fantastic story. Thank you, Ms. Fawn Weaver, for bringing this uh, brand to life. Uh, I usually uh, take my bourbons uh, either neat or uh, on the rocks. When you pour it, give it a little sniff. It's got a little honey uh, tinge to it, uh, but it goes down nice and smooth. It gives you a, like a, a brief bite when you put into it, but uh, but it's smooth all the way down. And uh, like I said, I usually do mine neat or on the rocks, but uh, tell you what, I might be using this in a couple cocktails. So Uncle Nearest, the 1884 small batch is what I'm sipping on. What I'm smoking, the Nat Sherman Timeless Supreme. Uh, this is the box press. It hit hard with some pepper. Uh, when you uh, on that uh, on that first smoke, but uh, but it actually mellows out. It actually mellows out. Had an even draw all the way through, and it was a pretty good smoke. Uh, shame to see the uh, the franchise store uh, in Midtown Manhattan. They're going to be going on a. They're going to be closing down uh, after I think the 25th. But you can still uh, head and get those online, and you're probably going to get those at your uh, cigar shops as well. So I'm sipping on Uncle Nearest 1884 Small Batch. And I am smoking the Matt Shermer Timeless Supreme Box Press. And my guest today is Mr. Benjamin Caps. He is an actor, a science fiction filmmaker, a stop motion animator from Chicago. He's actually one of the only, one of the few animators uh, to use life size uh, puppets for his uh, stop motion effects. Uh, his films have been recognized at the Prague Independent Film Festival, the Chicago Underground Film Festival and the indie uh, short fest. Recently, he took part in a virtual outer dark symposium of the greater weird. This sounds like an interesting guy, doesn't it? But uh, I absolutely love me some Ben Caps, and it was great to uh, get back to him, uh, get back in touch with him. This is JLP number 13 with Mr. Ben Caps. There we go. Sorry about that. How dare you attempt to be comfortable? I know, right? I'm off my brow like a... <laughs> it's so damn good to see you, Ben. It's so great to see you. It's been a long, it's been a long time. It's I mean, I see you on Facebook, but that's too, not the same. It's been too long. Shame on, shame, shame on both of us for not uh, attempting to get together. I, I agree with that. Uh, where, whereabouts are you? I'm in New York. I'm out in Long Island, New York. Okay, I thought that's where you were, but I wasn't yeah. sure. I'm still there. Traveled a little bit. Thought I was, uh, you know, gonna be a world adventurer. I said, no, I'm kind of better off being like a family man. It kind of I understand seems, that. Seems I see a little bit better. Sure. Are you, are you still are you still doing any acting? Ah, no. Like I, I, you know, I try to say that my day to day life is an act. I do a little of that. <laughs> I play a character all the time, as you can see. <laughs> I haven't changed so much. It's been a long time since La Vida Breve. Oh my God! Tell me about it. I, when I think about when I think about that show, I go, "Wow, that's." I, I keep forgetting how like impactful that show was because it it was the first, uh, the first. Uh, I think it was the first English translation of that show. That it was Suzanne. Suzanne, Suzanne Burgoyne translated that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. How we were like we were we were a, an English language United States premiere. We were. That was that was so much fun though. It, it was a lot of fun. I have really good fond memories, except the, the stupid sideburns that I wore, which are way too big for me, which really look oh, foolish. Okay. It's a metaphor, as a metaphor. Absolutely, it's a metaphor. It was great. I just, I remember getting punched in the face by Ben Caps. 
Uh, I remember the fight scene going awry one night okay. and getting kicked in the testicles by uh, by um, uh, Craig Taggart. Taggart. I'm sorry, no, <laughs> yeah. it was Taggart. Yes, he went on a rampage and he just he sure did. He got close a couple times, and I remember when he did it when he swung once. I saw his eyes go. Yeah, he was making eye contact with you when he did that. He just jumped on me, grabbed my throat. It was really believable. They got the they got the price of admission that night. The oh, audience, Peggy Reinsberger got a show that night. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. What? Well, uh, what? Thanks for having me on your show. By the way, it's oh, very know, absolutely, man. Uh, this is look. This is uh, this is great for me. This is uh, you know. I just figured in this uh, in the land of COVID, you know, why not uh, take this opportunity to get back to some people that I really really care about. And, well, thank and, uh, you. And catch up with them. What uh, what the hell are you doing to Chicago, man? What's going on? Uh, well, um, I've been in Chicago since I left Mizzou. You know, I studied theater at Mizzou with you and moved up here. And I came up here to be a stage actor. Um, and I did a little bit of stage but decided that I would rather make films. Right. And now I'm making supernatural sci-fi films and uh, doing pretty well with it. In fact, my... You are doing well with it. Thank you. My most recent film screened um, last uh, night before last at an event, a virtual event, which I was supposed to attend in person, called the Outer Dark Symposium of the Greater Weird, which is a, an event for people <laughs> who write weird fiction. And I got invited to that because they were having a film uh, screening for the first time this year, and they liked my work. So an author named Anya Martin, whose work I really like. She's a writer of weird fiction. She invited, she saw me give a lecture to, at the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival last year about uh, stop motion and about uh, Anton and Arto and Thought it was thought I deserved an invitation. It was really neat. That film is screened quite a bit, and um, awesome. I'm doing pretty well. Yeah, That's I'm awesome. finding an audience. You're um, are, are you? I, I've seen bits and pieces of your films, but are your effects strictly stop motion? Um, I mean, there are some effects that I use. My my films combine live action with with stop motion with life size stop motion puppets, puppets that are the same size as us. Most people stop motion use miniatures, but I use life-size puppets. Um, but the special effects, yeah, there's no CGI. There's a little bit of CGI, but very little. It's all stop motion puppetry. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. That's a, when uh, you said you went out to be a stage actor. So when, like that, that transition from being a stage actor to go into, into sci to direct sci-fi films, was that a big jump or was that something that you just, you just like bled into and just said, well, since I'm here, I might as well, Put, put both feet into it? Sure. No, that's a good question. Um, <clears throat> you know, I was in some stage shows, some early, like, late-night kind of risque comedy shows, and um, I decided I wanted to try and make films because I've always hated auditioning. I love acting. I yeah. hate auditioning. I hate, yeah. I hate the rejection of auditioning, the stress, um, getting your heart set on a part, not getting it. I mean, that's common. I mean, that's, that's the plight of the actor. Yeah. Um, the first films that I made were not sci-fi. I really wanted to do some class. I was, I'm a big fan of Kenneth Branagh. I really like his, I love Kenneth Branagh's classical works. And I made a couple of short films that were classical. Uh, they were done on 16 millimeter, which I, I love it. 16 millimeter, don't recommend it. It's very hard to work with real film. Yeah. And I was making a short film. It was a scene from The Life and Death of King John, which is a Shakespeare play. It's a history that's not done very much. I chose that one because there's a character in it that I really love named Philip Falconbridge. I really wanted to play the character, so I cast myself. There you go. Um, and at the same time, there was a production of uh, The Winter's Tale being done here in okay. Chicago. And I, I, there's a character named Autolycus I really wanted to play. So I went and auditioned for uh, The Winter's Tale, and I didn't get called back. They didn't like my monologue. 
I don't know what it was, but I was I was pretty devastated. And interestingly, when we were rehearsing King John, it was being rehearsed in the same building where they were having the callbacks for the Winter's Tale. So when I showed up to rehearse King John, the director of the Winter's Tale saw me come in and went, and he made eye contact, and I could just tell his thought process was, I didn't call this guy back. Why the hell is he here? And I just, that moment really just made my stomach feel uh. kind of yucky. And I had read an article um, that was written by Griffin Dunn. You know the actor Griffin Dunn? No. Um, he was an American werewolf in London. He's the friend who gets killed by the werewolf who keeps coming back and decaying. Okay. Okay. He was in a quiz show. He was in a film called After Hours. Well, he's a, he started out as an actor, but he also produces his own work. He actually made a short film that was up for an Oscar many years ago. But he said, um, you know, as an actor, you're going to be fraught with disappointment. It's going to be an uphill struggle. But if you produce your own work, you can actually make the work and you can cast yourself in it. And you, you have full control of the artistic vision. And that in combination with, you know, the guy giving me this, this stink eye about showing up to his callback when I didn't call back. And he said, I'm not going to audition for anything anymore. I'm just going to do my own work. I can tell my own stories and do it all on my own terms. There'll be limitations because of money. But and, you know, I did reach out to Kenneth Branagh. I did hit send him some of my work early on. And really? he, he, wrote, he wrote me back. He wrote me back. Awesome. He did. Uh, it was um, it was friendly. It was a little lukewarm, very short, but the, the letters are on my wall. Um, I did <laughs> on my wall. I, I did. I did. I did bribe him a little bit. I to confess a little bit. I did send him a bribe to get him to write me back to send me a little goodie that I knew he would like. And uh, what was the, what I, the goodie? Well, um, sure, sure. Um, I have a friend who's an antiquarian book dealer, and he travels around to book shows. And he went to a book show in Vancouver uh, when they were making the film The Wild Wild West. Um, I love the old TV show. I don't really care for the movie so much, but Kenneth Branagh plays the villain. He plays Dr. Loveless. So Kenneth Branagh comes to this book show where my friend has a booth. And um, Kenneth Branagh is a fan of uh, Lord Alfred Tennyson, the poet laureate from England. And my friend had a framed, uh, apparently autographs from Tennyson are very rare, and he had a framed autograph piece of parchment from Alfred Tennyson in his booth. And Branagh saw this and looked at this for a long time and debated on buying it. And then his girlfriend at the time came up and said, oh, Kenneth, let's go. I don't want to go be at this book show anymore. Oh, so he, so they left. Yeah. So he chick. didn't, you know, as a chick messing up Lord Tennyson. <laughs> so Kenneth Branagh did not buy this thing. So I bought it and I sent it to him with my phone and I packaged it up. I bought this sort of medieval looking box with big rivets in it and a big padlock and put a, I had a wax seal and I put all this fancy, fancy shit in this box. And oh, I'm sorry, can I swear on your show? I just, oh, I just have Oh, okay. Okay, good. So, so anyway, about half of the letter was him thanking me for sending him the Tennyson thing. And, and the other half was, you know, a nice, nice little thing about my film. And I also made a, a short film of the Duchess of Malfi, which is a John Webster play. Okay. I sent him that as well. But after that, I decided the stories I want to tell, you know, Shakespeare, I love Shakespeare, but Shakespeare, Shakespeare's work. I want to tell my own stories with my own work. Right. And decided what I really love is sci-fi. And I like sci-fi, I like stop motion, I like stuff from the 70s. How can I combine all this and get my vision out there? So I, it's that was many years, that was probably 15 years ago. So now I've finally found my voice in terms of how I want to tell my stories. That this film, this film you have now is that this is your third film, right? Um, this is my there's been several, but this is my third film that I show people. Um, this is the third film that's got stop motion puppets in it. 
Um, this film is called Civet. Uh, it's about 18 minutes long. Um, I do retro sci-fi. So it looks, it's set in the future, but it looks like the 70s. It's um, stunted technology. Because, you know, I grew up, I grew up, I was born in the 70s, you know, and my first memories were, you know, the green screen monitors. And I was really into Star Trek as a kid. And so that sort of stuff really is when my imagination was getting captured is what turned me on. So when I make films, it kind of looks like that. Um, and I, I grew up on, I love stop motion animation. I never thought that I could do it. Uh, it seemed like something you have to go to school for. Um, um, I really like Pee Wee's Playhouse growing up, a lot of stop motion right, claymation right. Playhouse. There's this B grade film called Laser Blast, which came out in the like 19- I know that film, yes. Um, Mystery Science Theater 3000 does a good. Okay. Okay. Um, but that's that's got some great stop motion in it. It's a B grade sci fi thing. There's these puppets made by an animator named David Allen, who I really love. Um, but there's a film called Blood Tea and Red String. It's a feature length stop motion film, uh, which I really loved. And I watched it for a second time, and I just a light bulb went off in my head. I said, I'm just going to try and do this. Right. And I bought a book on how to do it, and it came out okay. Isn't that amazing? So. So I decided to start incorporating the two. And, and my new film is mostly live action, but there are some stop motion, the stop motion demons in it. There's my, my puppets are demons. Um, and they, um, they interact with the main characters. The main characters in my film are not savory characters, very antagonistic characters, mentally damaged characters. They're usually people okay. who have a, 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 some problem. And in the most recent works, I do a sexual problem that they're trying to fix in a way that's not healthy. And it's not healthy. And then sometimes it can lead to a death or a murder, a sacrilege. And as a result of the sacrilege, the demons appear and, you know, help the character fix the problems. And, the, 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 um, yeah, not in a healthy way. So, Mike, I play the main character in my new film. Same old Ben. Same old Ben, yeah. <laughs> um, you, said, you, you, you said you got a book to teach you how to do, like, like stop, um, I'm sorry, um, stop motion. Was it was it a lot simpler than you thought it was? I mean, because I'm sure that like when we conceive things, it's like it's this uh, thing that you said you got to do like for thousands of hours and whatnot. But was it a lot easier than what you anticipated? Um, It's a lot more time consuming. I mean, the time that it takes to do it is is the most difficult part. I mean, you have to learn how how much to move the puppet in order to get certain speeds and certain looks. Um, The actual technique, it's really not that difficult. It's it's just learning the technique by doing um since i use life-size puppets big puppets the the uh the problem is really gravity because the puppets fall over you know little puppets they have you know magnets in their feet and they stick to like a sheet the sheet metal or they have tie downs but my puppets are big and sometimes the puppet falls over and it's like ah fuck you know i've 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 been animating for three hours here and now the puppet's fallen over and i have to do all of this work to get it to stand back up and continue what i was doing and then you look and you realize that you've taken 300 pictures, which means you've run from the puppet to the camera 300 times. Like, <laughs> but you have. You have. My goodness. It's do, crazy. Do you, do you have your own studio? Um, I do, um, sort of. Um, the house where I live is a, a four-unit apartment building. Um, I had tenants, but they're moved out. And I have, a, I have two vacant apartments downstairs. And one of them, the tenant just left. So I have a, uh, essentially a living room that's just pretty large, which... That's where I build my sets and do my animating. Nice, it worked out. Yeah, it worked out very well. It takes a lot of room to do this stuff. Your fr- tell me about your uh, the, the the first film that you had. Um, well, let's see. 
the, the first film that I actually show people uh, is a film called um, Hikikomori, which is a Japanese word. Uh, oh, okay. Hiki- I'm familiar with that one. Okay, yeah, Hikikomori is a Japanese term, um, which a Hikikomori is someone who shuns society. It's someone who's a shut-in, who um, is a misanthropic person. Uh, it literally means to draw inward. Um, the film was made in about two weeks for an art show. I was invited to be in an art show, and I, I didn't have any work at that time. So I thought, screw it. I'm just going to make something quickly and use these big puppets because I'd built some puppets. I hadn't used them yet. So I and a, a person who uh, I, I was in a relationship with at the time, we put this together. Um, and um, it is about a person who commits suicide. And after they commit suicide, when they cross over, um, they're met by these stop motion demons. It's basically Hell's Welcome Wagon. Um, and it's a short, it's four minutes long. It doesn't have a happy ending. Uh, it did. Nah, sorry. Yeah, there's too much happy crap for these. No, I, I just, I mean, Anton and Arto would be rolling over his grave if I gave him a happy ending. Absolutely. Everybody's too uh, optimistic these days. Fuck that. I agree. Well, it's, yeah, it's more thought provoking. Well, when I, when I showed it at the art show, it had, it had, uh, not a happy ending, but, it gave the audience an out at the end and someone came up to my actress after watching it and said, Oh, thank God. I'm so glad that your, your character survived. I was so worried. I was so worried. And I thought I made the wrong choice. So I went and cut that off. And then I showed it at another art show and people, I mean, the production value is pretty low, but interestingly enough, at the second art show I showed it, um, there was a kid, he was probably 10 his parents let him watch it. He sat up there in the screening room and he watched that film four or five times. And he came and asked me all these questions about it. as a kid. Wow. Big impact on him. So I hope he's Fantastic. drawn into theater. Yeah, I hope he's drawn into theater. Right, he's drawn into it now. No, but you can't. You can't rely on the audience for anything. No, you can't. You can't. No, I mean, what Harold Pinter said: "Fuck the audience." Yeah, he said, "Fuck them." Yeah, I, I learned. I learned that when we did our. If you remember when we did our trip to ACTF and when we saw all those shows. And they, somebody did a rendition of Orphans, which was god Oh, God. It was the worst thing. It's, it remains the, the worst thing I've ever seen. And I saw it with... Um, first of all, I didn't know that that show was a, was a popular, well-done show. Uh, right. Previously. It had Albert, Albert Finney, I think, uh, actually won awards for it. And it so afterwards, I had, I had seen it afterwards. And then I was like, holy God, this shit is fantastic. So they really just fucked this up. Oh, bad! It was, it was horrible. And I remember I saw it with uh, with Pat Ivan. I don't know if you remember uh, Pat Ivan. Of course. And I saw it with him. And at the end of the show, everybody stood up and started clapping. And me and Pat stared at each other, and we just went, "No." <laughs> so we're not we're not doing it. No, awful. We're not doing it. We're going to be those guys. And then I remember when I saw you the next morning, the first words you said was, that was the worst show you've ever seen in your life. That, was, that may still be the worst show I've ever seen. And I've seen some real shit shows since then, but that was really bad. Um, yeah, I saw that with uh, John Herbert, yeah. And listening to people as what, comment on it as they walked out, it, I was like, okay, the audience is not a reliable uh, uh, gauge of um, – What's the word I'm looking for? Well, first of all, what talent is. I mean, and everybody's got their own bias. If your son's up there, of course, your son always did a fantastic job. You know? Of course. But, uh, uh, no, it, it was, it was, no. Well, the set was, I mean, the production design was shitty. The set was bad. You could see the crew. They were not making an effort to yeah. hide. And this was not a Brechtian show. This was like a legit, you know, realism show. It's like, I can see the crew. Yeah. 
and they and they did still and they did things like they so they had a they had a set break in which they brought the lights down and they dressed the set and they I remember they dressed the set by putting on uh, putting dinner plates on the table and the first thing they did when the lights came off was take the dinner plates off the table so it was like wait a minute you took that two minutes to set up a dinner table offset just to have them put it back just like little mechanical shit like that it just bothered yeah. Well, and the thing is that, that that's the show that got selected to go to the yeah. American College. It's like, what else did they have in their season that was worse that didn't get selected? Yeah, yeah right. Something didn't get selected. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure those actors in that show, they're making they're on TV shows now making a million bucks. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Chiseled up talking about their time. I'm uh, sure slum, they are. at ACTF. Oh, my God. <laughs> how was, uh, how, how, did you come to Chicago right after you left Mizzou? Um, I graduated from Mizzou in August of 98 and I came, I was in a relationship with somebody and we moved up here together around just at the beginning of 99. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I graduated and I walked in May, but then I still had one class I hadn't taken it was statistics, which I waited. It's a non-theater class statistics. Yeah. So, um, so I waited, but yeah, it was pretty much immediate. It was either here or LA. I know a lot of people went out to LA you know, Kim Swank, Kim, Kim went out to L.A. I talked to Kim. A couple, few, few She's doing great. What great artwork she does. Oh, she does fantastic work. She does fantastic work. She has, she has her own studio. It's like an open studio. She says uh, mm-hmm. every day she sees a few different stray cats. Yeah, yeah. She's cool. I'd love to see her. I'd like to work with her again. But uh, I think L.A. is getting a little crazy. Yeah, I, I'm glad that I made the choice to come here. Um, the film scene is really good here. Um I'm fortunate because, you know, I hire a crew. I tried to get into film school and I wasn't accepted. So I thought, okay, well, I'll just, I was, I was not accepted. Uh, I tried to get in. I was working at the School of the Art Institute and I applied to the film program there. And um, I wasn't rejected. I was what was called waitlisted. And I don't know if that's, that's, a, that's a, I would rather be outright rejected than put on some kind of waitlist. Pretty much, right? Yeah. I was, you kind of like leave this hope. No, well, that was eleven years ago. So my my hope is, <laughs> I think the wait list. So I bed cats guy. Yeah, well, they <laughs> tear that up. Let's give him a call. So I, I figured, well, the money that I would have spent in tuition, I can just I throw into my own artwork. And if I don't know how to do something, I'll just hire somebody to do it. So I, you know, I met a cinematographer with whom I work. His name is Matt Hughes, and we work on all this stuff. And he's absolutely fantastic, um, and he knows everybody. So we always get a great crew together. And because um, I act in my own films, and that's it's it's challenging to be in the film and also directing it. Um, so you really have to trust your assistant director and really have to trust your cinematographer. And I do implicitly. And um, my newest film, Civet, there's, there's some sex content. There's some nudity and some sex and some very unflattering sex content. And I, you know, I chose to play the character as, a, as opposed to casting somebody. Um, and, you know, when you're doing that, you have to, you have to really trust your, your crew trust your and people. trust your people, especially when, you know, you have you also have to cry. I mean, I cry in the film as well. And mm-hmm. I was worried, you know, am I going to be able to cry with nine people packed into this bedroom? You know, me naked in bed going crying. But I, their camera was this close to my face. I forgot it was there. And it, it was it really worked out really well. That's awesome. I was really, yeah, really impressed that that I could pull that off. That's got to be that's got to be difficult, though. But to, 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 to direct and critique yourself, because, mm. uh, well, I, I like the last conversation I had, I had with a. Um, a woman named Sarah Martin. She runs her own uh, 
production company called Silent Envy Productions. And she puts herself in her films also, but she's more on hands. Uh, she seems more on hands than you are. She doesn't, uh, you know, she doesn't have assistants looking at stuff and, and things like that. And so she like she looks at it, does it, goes back, looks at it, does it, goes back and looks at it. And I don't know. I think it would be maybe not easier, but you do have to trust another set of eyes because you probably get a better product that way. Another set yes. of eyes says, "Hey, we can do this a different way." Yes. Um, in fact, my cinematographer—he always comes up with. I, I show him my storyboards, and he says, "Well, what if we did it this way and try it this way?" And he makes it look like a million million bucks. Um, and you know, we try to shoot so much because filmmaking is pretty expensive, and hiring people and feeding people. So I try to compress my my shoot times down into the fewest number of days. And as a result, I don't always get to get up and, you know, look on the monitor and watch the playback and say, okay, this was good. And this wasn't, you know, I have to trust them, you know, in the rehearsal process and in the, the, uh, the production meeting process to know exactly what it is I'm looking for and then trust them to say, okay, I think we got what you want or it's even better than you wanted. Um, and then, then I can feel confident to go on to the next scene without watching playbacks because I just don't have the time because you run out of time really fast on these shoots. Do you shoot sequentially? I try to. Um, the last film that I made, I couldn't shoot sequentially simply because of the availability of the location. So we shot, the first thing that we shot was uh, about three quarters of the way into the film. And for me, that affected the character development. Um, I think I can tell in my acting that um, the progression of my character changes because if I had shot that in sequence, I would have played it differently. Um, so... But usually I try to shoot in sequence. Uh, I think that's important for the actors and important for keeping um, right. cohesion of story. So I would think a guy like a guy like an actor like you would be hard to direct yourself because you're. I mean, you're. I mean, you're. 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 You're a very good actor. You're a very conscientious Thanks. actor. You're a very conscientious actor, and you. you're very much like, well, this begot this begot this begot this. And so if, if one thing in that sequence like falls out of line, uh, you either make up for it or you have to make an adjustment to it. And that seems to like contradict what the director wants and what yeah. the actor wants. You know? Absolutely. Um, and it's a very different animal than you know, theater. I didn't have a film background, a theater background. And when you're acting in a play and you're rehearsing in a play and, and doing it sequentially, you know, the, the, the character builds and develops and it's, yeah, it's, it's a lot different, um, uh, doing film. Um, but for me, I, I, I add a lot of autobiography into my film. So there's a lot of my own life experience in the film and that, that helps, that helps me develop my character. It's not, it's not purely autobiographical. It's there's snippets of it. I'm not playing myself. Uh, in fact, in my, my new film, um, my mother won't watch my new film. Uh, she, she was very supportive financially toward me being able to produce it, but you know, there's some sex content. She doesn't want to see her son in a sexual, and I don't, I don't blame her. Um, but there is some stuff in that aside from the sexual stuff where my character talks about an experience with his mother and part of, a little bit of that is autobiographical, but it doesn't really relate to my mother. And I would hate for my mother to see that and think, you know, I damaged my son in some way and she's making a film about it. That's not the case. Um, but, the, but the, <laughs> I would absolutely hate that. Or some somebody else would watch and think, oh, my God, Ben had a horrible childhood. Now he's you know, doing theater's therapy and yeah. making his films. Yeah. Um, so, but ben. what's that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I don't want to have that kind of talk. My mother has watched my, my work. She's seen some of my stop motion and she, she likes it. So, yeah. but this one, you know, there's some sexual stuff. So I don't. 
And the next one, there's going to be some sexual stuff, but it's, I may not even be in the next one. I may be purely behind the camera. The how, long did it ta- how long did it take you to write your films? Like, you, like from, from concept to like putting it on the page and then, or are you continuously working on it as you're uh, or shooting it? Um, well, from the time I get the script done to the time the film is in the can is about a year. My films are short films. Uh, the newest film is 18 minutes long. That's a little long. I would like my films to be 10 or 12 minutes. I think that's more digestible. Um, people have asked me about making a feature length film, but I, I, I think that's more than I can chew, uh, especially in terms of budget. I, I, I crowdfund my films. I use Indiegogo to raise money for my films. Uh, my last film, and filmmakers seem to be really reluctant to talk about their budgets, especially when I go to film festivals. It's like, so how much did your film cost? Oh, and they don't want to talk about it. I'm happy to talk about it. I think why, it's a great why, one. Why is that? Why, why do they? I have no idea. They, they seem to be very shy, whether it either looks like they got a lot of money and they squandered it or they did it on the cheap. And embarrassed. I don't know what the logic is, but my, my film Civet costs $15,000 to make. And I raised about half of that on Indiegogo and the rest of it went on a credit card. Okay. And that was made three years ago. And I'm still paying off credit card. I'm still paying off it. But but it's that's okay, you know. I've got to do what I got to do to make my films, and make uh, your films, right? You wouldn't have it other I, way, though. There is really at this point, there's no other way. I don't have a huge benefactor um, to giving me money, and and when people give you lots of money, they want to put a choke chain on you, and they want to have control over your work. I would much rather do. Um, there was one instance where someone gave me some money toward an art project, and they wanted to see some stuff before it was done, and I don't like showing people stuff before it's done. And they questioned some stuff that I was doing and they wanted me to send it to them so they could make changes. Now, this wasn't a collaborator. This this was just somebody who had given me money. And I did a little song and dance and got out of that. Mm -hmm. Um, I disagreed with their what they were saying. And I'm the director. They gave me money. They need to trust me to do this. But, you know, I remember a story, you know, I really like Leonard Nimoy. He was really the reason I studied theater, the Spock character. And he was interviewed and he was talking about making um, the third Star Trek film, The Search for Spock, if you're familiar with that film. Yes. Um, well, he's, he's not in that film, most of it. He's directing it. Um, but Paramount um, really kept a choke chain on him and they were constantly hammering at him on all of his decisions and constantly meeting with him. And this is Leonard Nimoy. This is Spock. And they don't trust Spock to make a Star Trek film. <laughs> like, what the fuck? <laughs> so it's, if they don't trust Leonard Nimoy to direct a Star Trek film, you know, that scares me because I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I'm kind of a little bit of a I'm up and coming, but I'm, I'm still kind of I'm underground, which is OK. But I'm kind of a nobody still. Well, I, you know, all the stories I hear about people that have to deal with, you know, producers and, you know, whether it be like movies or television or stuff like that, it's, it's none of it is a positive experience. Oh. No. None of it is positive. It's always, it's always some freaking bean counter from a, you know, suburb of Denver who, 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 <laughs> who all of a sudden uh, thinks that they, you know, know what, you know, what's supposed to be seen or what is, I remember the last audition that I actually went to, somebody told me that I wasn't urban enough. You know, you're just not urban enough. And I said, okay, well, I'm from fucking South Jamaica, Queens, New York. So yes. I don't know how unurban that is, but you go ahead with your perception of what urban is. You know, this is like around the like, yeah, MTV videos was fucking big at the time. And I was like, okay, mm-hmm. I can see where you're going. It's fine. Yep. I, wouldn't I don't think I would have lasted if, if, if I would have ever done that. I just, 
I, it, it's taken me such a long time to figure out who I am. Sure. You know, and I've had so many bumps in the, in the road and whatnot. And I think having a certain level of, um, uh, a certain level of success might have like interfered in that those bumps would have been bigger bumps. I agree. You know, you know? I agree with I that. Mean, I, I, I look at who I am now. I like who I am now. It took me a long time to get here. And so, you know, all that stuff in the past is like all that stuff in the past. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't begrudge anything. I mean, I would, yeah, I would, you know, maybe one day I'll walk in somebody's office and say, hey, I, I can work for cheap. So let's, let's see what we can do. But other than that, it's like, eh. Yeah, I, I really disliked the person that I was in theater school when you knew me back then. You know, I, I felt like I was wasting time then. I don't feel like I took theater as seriously as I should have. I was also really goth and I was really involved in the goth scene and I was doing some music then. So I was kind of serving two masters and I, I really think that I, I could have taken things a lot farther. Um, and one, one thing that happened in theater school actually involving you had a big impact on me. We were in a directing class together okay. and you were in a scene where you played a character named Sykes. And I forget the guy's name who directed that scene, but you told me you played a, it was a villainous, unlikable character. Yes. yes Sykes, Sykes, yeah. Sykes. It was yes. really done really well. Whoever that guy was, I don't remember his name who directed that. It was Eric, <laughs> Eric Wilson, and it was a Zorro Neil Hurston uh, poem. Okay. Yeah. I, I would imagine that he's gone on to do theater and probably is doing very well. I think he's a minister. Interesting. Okay, well, hope there's, there's some theater involved in that. There's always theater involved in ministry. <laughs> I guess there is. <laughs> but what really struck me about that is, you know, that scene was performed several times in class, and I think it was performed for, you know, uh, as a production for, mm -hmm. you know, directing scenes. And you said that after acting that character, you had to go out and walk it off because you just kind of hated yourself for playing that character. Yeah. And I thought, wow, that's, that's real cruelty there that you're able to – live that and then transfer that to the audience. That's what cruelty is all about. And that was a really, really defining moment for me in thinking about that, hearing you say that as an actor who I admired. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Sure. I, I, I remember that. Yeah, it took me, I had to walk away because the person who I was acting against, a young lady named, named uh, Tanya, I, I, was, yeah. I, I liked her a lot. She was a really, really close friend of mine. But I had to be very, very villainous and devious and, and brutal towards her. Mm -hmm. And so I, I don't, I don't, you know, you can say acting is pretending all you want to, but you have to, the, the seeds of that have to be planted uh, in you. And so you have to allow that seed to grow, so to speak. And so the capacity for that has to be real. And so, yeah, there was this, this, there was this, this, uh, this anger, this frustration, this, this abusiveness that I had towards her for that, you know, for that time that we did that. And I had to leave. I had to like walk away and do something else and, and forget who that dude was before I could come back and, and see her again you know, go out to dinner or something like that. Sure. And I mean, as, as difficult as that is, that's what makes theater so magical. Yeah. Um, and I remember doing La Vida Breve and during our, um, you know, pre-rehearsal warmups with Suzanne Burgoyne, the director, uh, she would have us all apologize to each other. So she would say, I'm very sorry for what my character is going to do to you in the show. And mm -hmm. I didn't take that as seriously then as I do now, but, you know, having done some Having grown as an actor myself and, you know, trying to uh, purvey some of the some of Arto's theories and um, doing some playing some unsavory characters, I, I really understand uh, that. And um, the, the acting is believing and maybe alienating another actor because it's hard to turn that off. 
you know, and, and when I was acting, you know, in the, this film and there was some crime, you know, they, the, the, the AD would call cut. I couldn't turn it off. I was like, I, I'm still in the character. I still feel terrible. I got to go, go by, be by myself. Um, but that's, that's when I felt like I was really an actor where I had gone from just being a, a, a hack to a real thespian. Well, it has to be matched also. And so whatever you bring has to be like, it, it can't be uneven. And hmm. so I, th- I think that's the, I think that's the gist of what Suzanne was getting at. It, it, you know, not necessarily an apology, but understanding that we all have to put ourselves in a position to which we're going to be number one, vulnerable and aggressive, uh, almost yes. simultaneously. And yeah, and and for, and then for that production, we had to, we had to do that. And it, the more intense moments we had, it came off it, it came off like that. Like it was just it was almost like a trigger. Like once once something started, once something went down a certain way, everybody seemed to have picked up on it. Yeah, the intensity of it, and it was such a dark show, and it was such a. It, it's it the stage amazing. rocked. Yes, I remember that. That was bitching. I mean, <laughs> wow. The stage rocked, and it was all. And I, I, I can't remember. Somebody had. Did somebody have a, like a broken foot or something? Some, somebody, yeah, somebody got. There was an injury. I remember one night, uh, Keely left the bit. She had the flu, and after the show, she had to go off stage and vomit. Yeah, uh, this was Keely, and also uh, Kim Swank yeah. playing the same. Character, yeah, yeah. And Kim, yeah, she was injured. That's who it was. Was it Kim? Okay, I think it was Kim. Yeah, yeah. So that was a yeah. I wish that that'd make a great film. That show. You think so? Oh yeah, yeah. Sure would. That's well, damn it, Ben. Let's well, go. hey, hey, Suzanne. <laughs> I forget what the playwright's name is. I could call him. Uh, I don't. I don't speak French, so I, I don't think it would fly. <laughs> what I mean, uh, other than folk, do you do any other work other than focusing on your film? I mean, I know that's a lot. To ask, but do you do anything? Do you do any? Uh, you do any side work with your with your uh, with your films? I mean, um, I've been in some other people's films, but it's been a while since I've done anything else. Um, I do get asked to do stop motion a lot for people. I get a lot. I got an email recently from um, a record a record producer, um, and uh, they said some very nice things about my my stop motion. Said, "Hey, we've checked out your work. We think it's really unique, really good." Um, I produce X type of music and I have an artist who wants to make a music video. I get asked to do a lot of music videos. They want to do a music video and uh, we would really like to have some of your stop motion in it. And then comes the dreaded, you know, budgets are tight, can't pay anything, but it'd be great exposure for you because this artist is really up and coming. So then I told them my rate and I, you know, I know a lot of stop motion animators and they get asked to do stuff like this. You need to come up with a rate. And I said, $10,000 a minute. What? I said, for every minute of stop motion you want on the screen, it costs 10 grand for me to do it. For that, I build the puppets to your specifications. I animate them. I do the photography. I build the sets. And I send it to you, and you can do whatever you want with it. And you can critique it, and I'll do it again if you need me to do it again. And they they balked at that. They said, well, you know, your name doesn't carry enough weight to you could demand that kind of – I said, you're not paying for my name. You're paying for a skill set that really skill, right? nobody else does. I mean – there are probably three animators on the planet that do life-size stop motion. There's a guy named Jan Svankmeyer. Yeah, Jan Svankmeyer. He's, he's Czech. Um, he's famous for doing a stop motion called – it's an Alice in Wonderland just called Alice. Very, very dark film. Um, he also did a version of Faust, uh, the Christopher Marlowe version of Faust, which has some life-size puppets and life-size marionettes. It's really a bitch and surrealist film. There's a guy named Jiri Barda who is uh, also Czech. Um, I wrote to him, sent him some stuff. He wrote me a nice thing back. It was really nice. 
But yeah, but not many people do this kind of work. So I, I said, well, if you change your mind, you can let me know. Uh-huh. And I mean, in the, in the big scheme of filmmaking, 10 grand is not that much money. No, no, especially if they're going to use it for their, uh, you know, for their big, uh, for their big up and coming artist. For the big up and coming artist. And, and if I'm doing work for them, it's taking time away from my work. And, you know, I'm in my, my mid forties now and men in my family, they don't live to be past 70. So I figure I've got 25 years of life left. Oh, and that's, of, uh, that's just what I, I mean, you know, maybe not, I may live to be a hundred, but mm-hmm. I figure I've got 25 years to crank out something good. And my films are pretty, I mean, I'm getting some good acclaim, but I want to make one really good film before I die. Where people go, did you see that? Oh, wow. That was a masterpiece. Oh my God. That was so good. It's this and that. I won't make one film where people I don't know say that who are fans of my genre. So I don't think I'm there yet. It's, uh, it's on the way. It's on the way. Does, uh, how is the, how is the land of uh, COVID been treating you? Um, okay. I mean, um, um, I work at an opera profit in downtown Chicago and most of the people who work there are allowed to work from home. But what I do there is partially physical. So I have to go in, I have to take a Metro train to downtown Chicago and I wear masks and, mm-hmm. Um, you know, we were quarantined for a long time, just like everybody else, but you know, it's, it's been okay. Um, I don't personally know anybody with COVID. Thankfully, um, I have a great aunt who's in a nursing home at the moment and someone in the nursing home has COVID. So I hope, I hope that she's all right. But, um, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a single guy and I'm, you know, I'm dating some and the COVID hasn't stopped my ability to date. So I've been seeing some people and it's, it's been okay. Yeah, it's been okay. So I'm going, that's going pretty well. Um, so yeah, COVID's been treating me okay. Um, hookup must be uh, interesting. Uh, it is interesting. We we don't wear we masks. <laughs> <laughs> There's no social distancing when you're playing, you know, hide the cannoli. Oh, so <laughs> this, is, this is such a such a weird time. It's just it's it's a it's a post-apocalyptic film. It's right weird. Now. It, yeah, it is. It really is. It's it's goofy. Everybody's like everybody's wearing masks. My wife and I went out to a restaurant the other day and. Uh, Everybody had a mask on, and I'm like, "This is just fucking weird." It's fucking weird. And, and and it's not like you had a mask on, and um, uh, like like a like you just had a, you, you had a mask on, like you were wearing a tie. It was just another another article that you had to have on. But then there's so many things. I'm I'm so worried that we're going to get so used to uh, not looking at people's faces. I mean, mm-hmm. we're, we're distracted enough by our phones and and, and everything else. So if, if we do this much longer, like if we, for whatever reason, like say, like say until the spring, mm-hmm. you know, some of the places demand that uh, you got to keep wearing your It probably will be till the spring. Yeah. It's just that idea of like not being able to see somebody's face. And, and only looking at the eyes. Everything right. we get through the eyes. Right. Um, and then it's just, I don't know. It's, 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 it's scary. Uh, you know, I look at my young son. He's about to go into daycare. And the daycare workers there are going to be wearing masks. And I'm mm-hmm. like, man, do they want to... Like, you're talking about a developing young man who's looking in a face for hints. You know? mm-hmm. this, and you're only seeing this. Yeah, you're only, yeah. It's like, you're looking at hints. You're looking for hints. Is this okay? Do you approve? Did I do something wrong? Are you upset? And, uh, and not being able to get those. I don't know. I don't know what kind of kid... I don't know what kind of kids we're going to have when, uh, when they grow up. Yeah, this, is, this will definitely affect development of young people. Um, and when I go to, and you know, I have gone out to restaurants and we generally try to sit outside when I go, but it's strange. You go in the restaurant, you put the mask on, but then you sit down and you can take it off, but then you put it on. So you go to the bathroom. It's just, yeah, that, it's, 
it's just funky and it just doesn't seem like this is really I mean you can't eat with a mask on obviously you can't drink right. wine with a mask on but right. but some of the some of these I think we're allowing ourselves, me personally, I just think we're allowing fear to sort of take the best of us. And um, I don't know. It's, I think your mayor's a little crazy. I think, uh, yeah, I think she could use a little dose of uh, reality. She's having a hard time keeping some stuff together. She's having a hard time. Every, every time I see her, I'm like, this chick is nuts, man. She's... Yeah. And, she, and, Chicago's, and Chicago's having its problems. I mean, you guys have a... Oh, you know, but thank goodness. Uh, thank goodness. You, well, hopefully you have not been affected by it, but there's, you, know, you guys got a serious crime problem that happens. In we Chicago. have a, a very serious gun violence problem here. And, you know, with all the protests and, um, you know, all the violence downtown on our magnificent mile, which is something that happened this week. You know, they're constantly shutting down downtown. They're blocking off access to the loop, which is downtown, raising the bridges and things. You know, I. I I wish they would show that much vigor toward all the gun violence that's been plaguing us for years. I mean, on the south and west sides. I mean, they're just it's, yeah, and 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 nobody talks about it. No, nobody talks about it. Nobody talks about it on a. Uh, one of the things that I get upset with is that we talk about like we talk about black people uh, dying at the hands of police and, and stuff like mm -hmm. that. And, and you know, all you got to do is look at the city of Chicago and look at how many people die every day. Yes, because of, I mean, because of guns and, and they're not nobody's coming down with a sawed off machine gun and and mowing people down. No, it's a simple handgun that every that, that illegal handguns that people carry. And, you know, if you want to address it, you got to address the whole thing. You can't you can't just address the, uh, the headline. Of it. I agree. I agree. And that's yeah, that's the, the activists here who are trying to put a stop to that. That's what they say. It's like, you know, come and protest the gun violence. But there's so much of it that people just become numb to it here. You might get <laughs> shot. Well, you, well, you, you might. There was a there was a funeral, I don't know, two weeks ago, and I I think it was gang affiliation with the funeral, and there were people coming out of the funeral home, and somebody just drove by and just just hosed the crowd. Uh, Fourteen oh, people got shot, you know. And this is when they shoot. This is the first time they're using their firearm. They don't know how to shoot. Not saying that they should go learn so they can kill people, but. You know, the bullets go, they hit children, yeah. lots of children. get More children get killed than whoever the intended targets are. Yeah. Hey, uh, over the last couple months, we've had uh, in New York, there's been, a, there's been a lot of kids that have been fell victim. I think one is a nine-year-old girl. Um, just, yeah. And it's, it's it, I, I hope, I want people to understand that criminals don't obey laws. No, they don't. So you, so you can change all the laws you want. The only thing that you're going to do with laws are you're going to keep honest people from protecting themselves with a firearm. Agreed. You know, I, I grew up on a, I grew up on a farm in rural Missouri and firearms were part of my upbringing. I, I, used, yeah. I used to go hunting, you know, I own firearms, you know, I've shot them and it just never occurred to me to go settle, you know, an argument with a gun. You know, yeah. if I get an argument with somebody, that's what they, that's what, that's what happens in Chicago. There's a disagreement. The first line of offense is take a gun, just you go kill the person. That's, yeah. that's how you deal with, that's how you deal with the issue. Um, so it's, it was really a foreign concept when I moved here. Um, you know, when I first moved here, I moved to a, a, a neighborhood, which is gentrified a lot now. It wasn't then. Um, and we had a, a street gang and we were some weird goths moving in, uh, to, a, a neighborhood controlled by a street gang, but street gang liked us. We were a novelty for the street gang. Um, you know, I, I bought, I bought weed from the street gang and, you know, <laughs> they, they were the, they were the Satan's disciples, the Satan's disciple street gang. 
Um, so I, I just for fun, I said, well, here, I have a copy of this the Satanic Bible by Anton LaVey here in paperback. You should have this if you're a saint's <laughs> disciple. They, they were really. So uh, the, that was the, a match. That was a match. And they, they drove around in their car blasting music and they had the, the, the Satanic Bible on their on their dash. But they would have gun battles sometimes on the street. And that drove us out. Um, bullets hit the house a couple of times and they weren't gunning for us, but the bullet could have easily come in and killed one well, of us. Could have easily, yeah, it could have easily, you know, bullet doesn't, you know, doesn't have your Bullet doesn't discriminate. Yeah, it doesn't whatsoever. And it's a shame because Chicago is a beautiful, absolute beautiful city. I agree. I, I really love Chicago. It's I don't want to move. It's a clean New York. It, 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 it's just, it's just a clean New York. The few times I've been in Chicago, there was one time my wife, uh, she, she, I think she. I can't remember if she was offered a job or there was a, a, a job in her field that she thought about. And the few times she visited Chicago, she was thinking about, hey, maybe we should move to Chicago. This is before we had our son. I think I remember, I th- think I either emailed you or contacted you and I said something to the effect of, hey, I think I might be moving to Chicago. This, this was a long time ago. This was like maybe I remember five, that. Five, six years ago. Um, but yeah, I think the thing that amazed me about it was how it was a, a city that I, that, that I liked. I liked cities i like urban areas but it was just so clean and it was just so it just looked like people gave a shit about what uh what what their place looked like and unfortunately there are parts here in new york where that's just not the case you guys don't have alleys that's the thing i noticed in new york there there aren't as many alleys no and you know garbage collection in chicago is generally done in alleys and i noticed in in in, manhattan when i was there that that was done on the sidewalk right in the street yeah in the street so that I mean, I've only been in New York City once, and that was 10 years ago at least, so, um, but. I never, I never realized that. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you don't have alleys. I mean, maybe you do have alleys in, in different right. neighborhoods. Yeah, in some neighborhoods, yeah. But yeah, but, but you're right. For the most part, trash collection is done up right in the middle of the street. Mm-hmm. So that's optics. I mean, that's yeah. just what you see. I mean, we have overflowing trash cans on our street here. That really changes the optics and how everything feels just because of an overflowing trash can. That's true. It's a good kind of a metaphor. But yeah, Chicago is clean. I really like it. I want to stay here. Good film scene here. I don't want to move. I bought a house here. I really like where I live. I live in a really cool historic neighborhood um, that's kind of far removed. I used to live, you know, in Lakeview, which is kind of where the action is. It's near Wrigley Field where the Cubs play. But I'm in a different stage of life now. So I like being in the city, but being far removed from from all of that. So, But I don't want to leave, honestly. You like access. I like access. I have great access. Access, but I don't want to be in the middle of all the drunks. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not 25 anymore. Uh, isn't that amazing how like, pers- like time and perspective like changes that? Like, oh, probably mm-hmm. when you were 25, you would probably want to be in the middle of every single person like throwing up. And- I, I was. I try. I strove for that. Yeah, and yeah, no, so not anymore. I don't have time. I still like my bars, but I'm like, I'm like the old guy. Yeah. I just, I'm there in the corner. I'm finished. I'm going to have another bourbon. And then just, <laughs> you guys go ahead and, like, you know, pound your shots and all that stuff. Yeah. I don't go to the goth clubs anymore and wear the velvet and skirts and, you know, dance you know? anymore. I, I do that. I dance around at home, but I don't. I, I play the goth. I play, you know, Skinny Puppy and Sisters of Mercy at home, but I don't go out anymore. What? Yeah, I'm, 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 Go ahead. I was gonna say you always you always throw on a a, 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 a fashion uh, purchase that you're gonna get. Like you always find some like fly leather jacket that you. Yes. Yes. Uh, like, shit! I wish I was fucking skinny so I can wear shit like that. Well, actually, you know, the, the a, a size that would fit you is easier to find than a size that will fit me. Really? 
Really? Um, yes, absolutely. Um, I have a 36 chest and it's very difficult to find stuff. If, I have a 28 waist and a 36 chest. So a finding anything. I have a 28 inch waist. I have a 28 inch waist. I have a 28, 32. Well, it's, I mean, it sounds good, but when you try to buy pants that fit, good luck. I mean, I look like I'm wearing a tater sack with all these fucking clothes. <laughs> But in the set, I like 70s leather jackets, and nobody buys the size 36 leather jackets. You type in 70s leather jacket 36 onto eBay, and a few things will come up, and they're 20 bucks or 15 bucks, and nobody wants these fucking things. So I have 20 leather jackets now because of that. Jesus. I love them. Yeah, I love them. I love them. So it's saying thank you for the advice. You've said some very, uh, very encouraging things, which have forced my hands into bidding on things. It's like, should I buy this? And you'll say something about uh, yeah, sending you some private, private pictures of me wearing the jacket. So there I was like, oh, I have to bid on it now. I got to send John some. As some long as I'm next, as mm -hmm. long as I'm next, buy the damn jacket. <laughs> mm -hmm. And these things get used in my films because my films look like the '70s, so I wear a '70s stuff in the film. So it's, it's practical, I think. So I can. Does um does COVID affect uh, how you're able to uh to, to shoot your films? Because I know well it's I'm sorry go ahead. well it will no it will um I'm writing a script right now which is it's close to being done I've been saying that for a long time but I've been talking to my cinematographer about shooting it and how we can do that because it's mostly gonna be shot in my house I think and um getting a crew together and making them feel safe it's gonna be a much more minimal crew. Um, he st the TV shows that are shot here, they're going to start shooting again in the fall with social distancing and masks and things. And he's, you know, he's going to go back to work doing those. And there's some trepidation about that, about how they're going to keep people safe, because you're really crammed in when you're making these films. Right, and there are tons yeah. of people packed in there. So yeah. one person gets moving in and out. With oh, yeah. It's it's crazy and compressed and everybody's breathing the same air. So and if one person gets sick, it'll knock your production down. I mean, you don't want anybody getting sick on a production anyway, but especially with this, because it's be fatal. I mean, this could sink. If someone dies making a TV show, it's be sink oh, show. That's, that's all you need to hear. I'm sure their insurance must be tremendously high. Yeah, I'm sure that. I mean, I buy insurance for my films. I always have to carry a million dollars worth of insurance per location per day. A million dollars worth, and that's not as bad as it sounds. It costs probably five hundred bucks to buy a policy that will cover a four day shoot to get you a million dollars of liability. Yeah. You said a million bucks per day of shooting. Uh, yes. If something happens on my set, um, the insurance company will pay out up to a million dollars of liability to fix something that's broken, somebody's medical expenses, you know, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. That's required generally if you're going to shoot in a place that's, that's public or you have to rent. Um, even if I shoot at my house, if someone gets hurt in my house, my homeowner's insurance doesn't cover that. So. Right. You have to buy a policy, but a policy is pretty reasonable. Um, it's funny, though, when you're buying the policy, there are all these questions. Are you making a rap video? Is this a gangster rap video? <laughs> and if it is, the dollar, it goes, the dollar value goes yeah. up. It's all about if it's gangster rap. It's, <laughs> I don't know. I guess I don't know what they figure there. But uh, That's amazing that it's actually on a sheet of paper. It's hysterical. I'll send you that. Something hysterical. Um, I don't, you know, I don't make gangster rap. Although someone asked me to do some stop motion for a gangster rap uh, at a party, I was at a party and a guy who does gangster rap said, "Hey, you do stop motion? I can use you in my video." And he told me a little. And it's like, I don't know if my puppets are appropriate for your subject matter. I don't know exactly how that would work. And then I told him my rate, and he walked away. But yeah, there you go. But it's $10, kind of ten thousand dollars a minute. Ten thousand dollars a minute. Ten thousand a minute. That's right. What do you classify as gangster rap anyway? 
I don't know. Um, you know, when I was in high school, I, I liked some rap music for a while. I like I like the Ghetto Boys. It was uh-huh. the Ghetto Boys, yeah. and they just. I mean, but I don't know what makes it gangsta. I don't know what that is. I, I, I don't know either. Like the Ghetto, like I wouldn't consider the Ghetto Boys gangsta rap. I don't think so. I like you know Ice T and you know it, you know Public Enemy and stuff like that. But I don't consider any of that to be gangsta. I don't know. No, there, there, there have been some silly like classifications on, on on music. I just I don't, I don't know why we just don't call music music. I don't know why we have to. Like, I agree. Yeah, why compartmentalize it into anything? Yeah, I mean, music. I mean, music is you know you 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 dig it or you don't dig it. There's some. You dig it? Yeah. Uh, I'm, I mean, I'm, you, you have your taste, but I'm sure. There's other, there's other things that you enjoy that are outside of your. Uh... Oh, absolutely! I, I listen to some classical music. I, you know, I listen to Frankie Goes to Hollywood, and you know, I, I like uh, tiki music. I like a lot of stuff that's not like golf, scary yeah. stuff. You know, I like some some happier stuff and moody things. So yeah, you know, I listen to Ice T. You know, I like that. I liked uh, this guy named Paul Hardcastle. I really liked. He did like oh yeah, Paul Hardcastle. Yeah, dancing music like King Tut. I love that one. King Tut. Yep. That's a great. Makes me want to get my wax up your cardboard and dance. <laughs> I love that stuff. That's what I grew up on as a kid, you know. How is your uh, How is your uh, family? Are, are, your, are your family still back home? You, you were from Missouri, correct? Born. In I'm from. I'm, yes, I'm from Southern rural Missouri. Um, my father's deceased. He passed away about twelve years ago. Um, and I grew up on a, a farm, not a farm with livestock. It was a farm where soybeans were grown. But it's out in the middle of the kind of out in the middle of nowhere. But my mother still lives there, and uh, she's doing okay. Um, COVID has not affected anyone there, and, and I travel back there sometimes. Um, and I I hated growing up in a rural area as a kid because I wanted to be in an urban area to do artwork and explore. But you know, as I've aged, I, I really miss pastoral rural life, and I would move back to the farm if that's a possibility financially for me. Okay. When if God forbid my mother dies. And I'm going to inherit that because I'm an only child, so I don't have to share that with anybody. I would move back. Um, that's that's hard to do. That's kind of weird, isn't? But that's a great picture. You and your leather jacket on with a, a pitchfork with a, with a sling blade. There you go. <laughs> <That's it>. <laughs> <laughs> Ain't got do no you, mesh in it. Do you get? Uh, do you? I, I think you might have said this earlier, but do you get opportunities to do any acting now, or or is it? Or, Yeah, I mean, nobody has offered me anything in a while. I don't audition. Um, I, I I have some actor friends who um, act on the TV shows here, like Chicago Fire and Chicago PD, and everything that's shot here, they they act on those shows, and you'll see them sometimes. So I talked to one of them, and he gave me advice on which agencies to send my headshot to. So I thought, maybe I'll try and get an agent. You know, Maybe I can get some work here and there. So I sent my headshot my resume to five the five top agencies in Chicago. And I expected within a month, at least, I would get a call to come in and do a monologue. None of them called me. Nothing. Nothing. Crickets. So I don't know what, what sinks me, whether it's, you know, I bleach my hair. People say, oh, you should let your hair be natural color. It's like, it's got to be some color. I mean, I'll, I would I would shave my head for, a, for the right thing. You know, I, I will do anything for the right part. But they, they never asked me to come and do it. So I thought, okay, well, maybe this tells me I should just be focusing on my, on my own work. It's amazing. Anytime you try to think that there's a methodology to this, there really isn't. There isn't. There's no methodology to it. Like, there's no way. How do you do well, I have no idea. Nobody knows. Honestly, mm-hmm. nobody knows. From the most successful person to the person who's 
like struggling to get parts day after day. Nobody knows what's going on. Yeah, and, and when I when I make my films, I, I hold auditions, and you get resumes and headshots and things, and you know the people who come to audition trying to weed through them, who's right for the part, who's not. I always ask people, I say, do you like horror? Do you like sci-fi? And some of them say, no, I hate it. Well, you do realize this is a, like a sci-fi scary film, right? Uh, so, but, uh, you know, the actress who plays my lover in Civet, you know, she came in and she did a horror monologue and it was really scary and really sexual. And, you know, so she, she really understood that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've had actors, you know, want their names removed from my, my work post-haste. Um, yeah, yeah. They're scared because they're worried that someone's going to see it and it's going to affect their ability to get other work. I take that as a compliment. Ultimately, it pisses me off well, because, yeah, but it's like, okay. I mean, starring I don't want to call Caps. anybody out because I, you know, but yeah, I've had some people want their name taken off. Starring Ben Caps and. Yeah, it was a film I was just directing. Yeah, and there was some difficult subject matter. The production values are pretty low, but I was experimenting with some troubling subject matter. And um, uh, it was a man and a woman. Well, it was a young woman. She was a teenager. And after the film was made, uh, she contacted me and said, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get into college now. Would you take my name off the film? I think if they Google my name and they find me associated with this film, it's going to be a problem. And she had expressed to me that she was going to be studying theater. And I remember contacting uh, for advice, writing to John Herbert, because he's a theater professor. And I told him this, and he said, well, fuck, if she's going to study theater, she should show them this, <laughs> that she's done this kind of work as a teenager. Right. And, you know, I have a, another person that I worked with. Um, there, there was a public school teacher, and they were so worried that someone was going to Google their name and find this. And I said, well, first of all, you're an actor, you know, and you're, you did a great job in the film. You really sold it. You get a lot of praise. And if anybody at your school has a problem with my artwork, I would be happy to come in and do an art lecture about my work and why it's appropriate and it's valid and why your performance was fucking amazing. Yeah. He wanted me to he wanted me to remove the film completely from YouTube. And I said, I'm not going to do that. Oh, geez, so, so you can lawyer up and sue me if you want, but there's no money. Why, in there. Well, then why would you do the that's what I thought. Was your, like you, like so, all the way till the end. You say, "Hey, now that we're all done, I really don't want to be a part of this." Exactly, exactly. This and when people when people came to audition for the film, I mean, I, I auditioned some young women for the film. Um, some of them looked. I gave them a, 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 an informational sheet about what my intentions were behind the film and about Anton Artaud and you know what the film is about. And I and I spelled out. Some of them refused to audition. It's like I didn't know this is what this is going to be. I'm not going to audition for this. And it's not a sex thing. There's no nudity or sex in it. Usually, that's a hang up for people. Um, the first actress that I cast. Um, I called and I talked to her mother and I wanted to offer her the part. And when she found out she'd been cast, she then turned it down because, you know, there's a, a suicide theme in it. And that really bothered her. And she said, well, I told my daughter that she was getting the part and it was a paid role, but she's turned it down and she's actually in her bedroom crying because she's upset at the subject matter of the film, which she knew when she auditioned. So I cast it. I cast the secondary act. The second, my second choice got the, got the part. And then she wanted her name taken off of it. But, you know, I don't know. So the, so the secondary actor wanted her name taken off of it as well? Yeah, the, 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 the next person I offered the role to accepted the role, played the character very well, and then later wrote to me and said, I want my name taken off of this. Um, and I said, I can't. I said, I can go into Internet Movie Database and I can ask them to remove your name. 
because she was in my film. She got an internet movie database page. It was kind of a big deal. But I did. I did that. I, I said, I'll be respectful. I'll take it anyway, but I'm not going to remove the film. So I don't know. It's weird. I, I guess in terms of theater of cruelty and times it, it was it was cruel enough that it affected the actors. It it awakened something in the actors that bothered them yeah. enough. So in a way, the experiment worked, but I wanted it to work for the audience, not for the performers. Not for the performer, right? <laughs> yeah, it's it's a, it's a weird. So yeah, so I vet my actors very, very, very much now. I think it's uh-huh. I explain, I show my work. I say this is what I want to do. This is what I'm trying to do here. Because when I start writing a script, the first thing I think before I ever start about think about a story is how do I want my audience to feel at the end of this? How do I want them to feel in here? And it's like how can I purvey that through a story? Um, and I always explain that to my cast, my crew, my audience, or to my actors, uh, and they have to be okay with it. As Antonin Artaud said, I want actors burning at the stakes, laughing at the flames. That's theater. Ah. <laughs> fuck the audience. As Harold Pinter says, fuck the audience. You're not going to get what you want. It's about, it's about the work itself, and fuck you. And Artaud said, people go to the theaters if they go to a brothel. It's like, fuck you. This is what... We're giving you, and you're going to take it, and you're going to like it. If you don't like it, that's your problem. God damn it, Ben, I miss you. <laughs> I miss you, too. I want to work with you again. I want you to be in some of my work. Think about think about that. I will think about it. I will think about it. Yeah, I'll write you a character for reals. Oh, so, that's so tempting now. Have, have you, have you, now. You've acted on film before, right? I have, yeah. Okay. Okay, well you sh- you should watch you should watch some of my newer newer stuff before you commit. I uh, I won't commit, but I I won't need to watch them. <laughs> if anybody I, if anybody I trust, it would be you. Oh, you're a peach. Thank you so much. Okay. Hey, listen, I really really appreciate you doing this, bro. Thank you for having me on. This has been a lot of fun talking with you. And a lot of fun. Hopefully, we'll get uh, we'll get back together, and maybe when you write that part, I'll see you in Chicago. That would be wonderful. Thank you, my friend. <laughs> I'm actually this uh, this later on this week. I'm talking to John Herbert. I finally convinced John Herbert oh, to, to do this. Please tell him I say I'd love to see him too. I want to do. I want to get like as many Mizzou people all together, and we can probably do like a call together. Do like a I don't know, like a virtual happy hours type thing. That would be kick ass. I would love that. Um, you know, maybe yeah, Becky yeah. Brown, Pat Ivan, and mm-hmm. Swank, and Pat, you you did something with you did something with Becky, didn't you? I did. I did a couple of things with her. She, uh, my Duchess of Malfi film. She was. Uh, she played the Duchess in that, and I do. I said to Kent Branagh. She was also in a sci-fi short I did called File Thirteen, which was. A, okay. She played a cop in that, and yeah. really great. And she was also in a film uh, I did called It Grows Dark, which got actually these posters are from when it was screened. She plays a very small part in that. She's just a woman freaking out in a phone booth, but. Uh, any excuse to get to work with Becky. She's just really fantastic. Is she in Chicago also? Yeah, she lives, uh, she lives in a suburb. Um, and actually her husband, my new film civet, her husband plays a scientist in that, nice. in a laboratory. Yeah. Nice. So yeah, I, I like working with people. I know. I know it's like Christopher guest. Ben, work with the same up, bro. I'm going to let you go, but I really, really All appreciate right. it, man. It was great talking to you. Great talking to you. Thank you, John. We'll talk soon. Take care, right, folks. Man, take it easy. Okay. Bye-bye. Chicago to be in a Ben Katz film? Hmm. It's not a bad offer. It's great talking to an old friend. And as I said earlier, shame on us for, uh, for not doing a better job of keeping in touch. 
hopefully we'll be able to do this again. There is no way to explain how talented and how unique Ben is. Head on over to his website, innerbelow.com, and his YouTube page, YouTube slash innerbelow, give you a better idea of what he's, uh, what kind of work he's doing. Let his work speak for itself. Reminder, take some time for yourself an Uncle Nearest 1884 small batch and grab a Nat Sherman Timeless Superior at the Fox Press. Thank you all for listening. Really, really appreciate it. I'll be back with another John's Only podcast. And until next time, I'm just going to keep saying peace. Peace.